Hello and welcome to another episode of Fandom Made Me, a podcast featuring activists, leaders, and writers about the pop culture and fandoms that made them who they are today. I'm your host, Sabrina Carton, and I hope that you're enjoying this very beautiful summer and catching up on all of the binge-watching. Today's episode is about a very bingeable favorite of many, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and today's special guest is Veronica I. Ariola. Veronica is a professional feminist, writer, and recovering soccer mom. Veronica's writing has been featured in USA Today, The New York Times, and Bitch Media R.I.P. Her first solo book, a children's book board called J is for Justice, is now available, and I will leave a link for that in the show notes. Veronica is also a counselor for Chicago's 24th Police District, a new mode for Chicagoans to have a voice in police accountability and how public safety policy is crafted. By day, she works on projects related to Latinx students, staff, and faculty at the University of Illinois at Chicago. She lives on the far north side of Chicago with her college-aged daughter, and you can find Veronica on Twitter and Instagram at Veronica, E-Y-E, that's Veronica I as in an eyeball. In between all of the amazing things that Veronica does, she is a Buffy super fan. And in this episode, we're going to talk about Buffy through the lens of leadership and empowerment. Spoiler alert, this episode features spoilers for all seven seasons of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And as a reminder, this show helps fund the important work of fan activists around the world and fandom forward. To learn more and chip in, you can subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash fandomforward or make a one-time donation at fandomforward.org slash donate. Now, on to the show. Veronica Ariola, welcome to Fandom Made Me. Are you ready to get cozy? I am. Thanks for having me. So, Veronica, you are an expert on higher education and a women's rights activist with a particular focus on helping Latinx scientists develop their work at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Now, it seems like your work requires a pretty deep background in both STEM and public administration. How did you get here? That's a great question. And in some ways, I've been preparing for this work my whole life uh, because I have been a nerd forever. Professionally, I have a degree in biological sciences. That was my undergrad. I spent most of my undergrad as a museum rat uh, at our field museum of natural history, studying fishes and uh, looking at fish locomotion, studying fish locomotion. And that was my master's is in public administration. So that's the simple answer. But as I said, it's been a lifelong journey. Uh, when I was a kid in elementary school, I was a super big nerd and finished my work pretty quickly in class. And so my teachers would actually have me do projects in class or would let me do my own projects in class. And this turned into finding me volunteering in other classrooms. There was definitely a year where I was helping with the preschool, helping kids who need a little extra help on learning things like above and below and inside, those kinds of words. There's a technical term that I forget, um, but I would sit down with the preschoolers and say, put the dinosaur on top of the bowl, inside the bowl that kind of thing, that I moved up to tutoring other students in math and reading. In high school, my pinnacle of my nerdum, um, I spent my junior year volunteering in the math department office, 
helping to run our math tutor center. Um, so the fact that I fell into um, higher education administration, running programs, building programs, working with students um, in order to help them succeed and fulfill their, their fullest potential is really not the biggest surprise in my life. And on top of all of this, you run the blog Viva La Feminista, and you are a newly minted elected official. First of all, congratulations. Tell me about what this office is and why did you decide to run for office? So I'm in Chicago and Chicago created a new mechanism for the community to have a voice in what public safety looks like. One of those things is a district council in every police district. There are 22 police districts in Chicago, and every council has three people. So I'm one of three people in the 24th district. And what our job is, is to be essentially liaisons between the community and the police department. We are charged with having at least one meeting every month to get the feedback, suggestions, ideas, concerns from the community in terms of what public safety looks like. And we're defining public safety very broadly. So people can are free to bring us information, concerns about gangs, guns, any sort of like physical violence, carjackings, break-ins, etc. Um, but we have also heard from people who've talked about things uh, in terms of public safety of crosswalks, better lighting, picking up trash in the neighborhood so it just looks better, parks keeping up our park so kids can play in, in a safe manner. And so we're really, we just started. We actually were just inaugurated on May 2nd and we're just getting going. This is an experiment in so many different ways. This is the first time Chicago is doing it. It is the most progressive uh, method of having the community have a voice in public safety in the entire country. So a lot of people are watching what we're doing and just really excited in order to really get this going, uh, particularly with having uh, Chicago elected a really progressive mayor. So the mayor is in support of all of this work. The city is in the process of hiring a new police superintendent. So there's just a lot of so much potential in this space right now. So it's really exciting and also pretty nerve wracking at the same time. What are you hoping to accomplish in this term? There's a couple things I'm hoping to accomplish. So one is as a public administrator is to really help set a really strong foundation for this entire enterprise. The ordinance that established the councils is very vague and it gives us a very bare bones framework on how we should operate. So this first term is really important, not only just to get things off the ground, but to set a precedent and what's to come down the road. So I'm really, really invested in making sure that what we're doing is a solid foundation for the next councils. Two is to increase communication across our district. My district is very long and stretches from the lakefront, which in Rogers Park, that has, um, I like to say, a lot, very politically active and engaged community, very progressive. Uh, a lot of old hippies live there and have been doing this kind of work for years, all the way to my end of the district, where it's a little more, a lot more conservative, actually, has a few of the precincts that actually voted for Trump. So somehow we have to be able to bridge that wide gap in order to get people to trust us and have com good communication and get that feedback so we can um, have a public safety plan that reflects the people. Um, and then three is to work with the police department in terms of having solid, accurate 
um, timely communication so that people don't have to rely so much on apps and rumor mills on social media about what's happening if there is a shooting, if there is some sort of violence on what's happening in the neighborhood. So on top of all of the usual public safety concerns, carjacking, gun violence, jaywalking, I guess, is not really. How is this council essentially addressing police violence in Chicago? Actually, it's at the heart of what we should be doing or how we got here, I should say. The district's councils being created is the culmination of decades of work from the grassroots in terms of holding the police accountable for the violence that they do perpetrate. In 1919, uh, Chicago had, it's called the Red Summer in Chicago. There was a young Black man who was killed by a mob of white Chicagoans, and not much happened in in terms of that, Um, going all the way up to Fred Hampton's assassination in the 1960s, building from that the different occasions where police have brutalized the people of Chicago. We've had a few police officers that have definitely operated in conspiracy to frame particularly Black and Latinx uh, Chicagoans for crimes, particularly John Burge, who framed so many people that there is now a curriculum that is taught in Chicago public schools so the students understand that history that Chicago lives and that legacy. Of course, then we had the summer of 2020 with the civil rights uprisings that happened all around the country and particularly in Chicago. So this ordinance came about from all of that work in the grassroots and And so part of our job is also to hold the police accountable. So we do have part of our charge is to get that feedback from the community on what is happening. One good example that I've heard on the campaign trail is that one area that could be improved is after school, a lot of high school students, particularly our young Black men and Black and particularly our young Black and Latinx men are walking home from school and they feel they are being harassed by the police. And when police are asking them what they're doing, they have, they're just answering, I'm trying to go home or I'm trying to get to work. Um, so that's an area that I'm hoping that we can improve. Also, if there are people who feel like they have been harmed by the police and the other operations in the police structure, like internal affairs and the police board, are not handling their concerns properly, they can come to us and we can try to see what's happening. Again, we act as a liaison. We don't have, we don't have the power to fire a police officer to suspend them or, or anything like that. But we do have as a bully pulpit, essentially, a platform in order to raise awareness, go directly to the commander of the district and ask what is happening in this case. So it sounds to me like the theme of your career, whether you're in public service in in this context with this new role or at the University of Illinois Chicago, is really to be a champion for marginalized people, typically students, but often just a community advocate. And we're going to talk about that work through the lens of one of your favorite TV shows, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Can you tell our listeners what Buffy the Vampire Slayer is if they've been living under a rock? (laughs) If they've been living under a rock. So Buffy the Vampire Slayer is this tale of a young woman 
very blonde, very ditzy appearing, who actually is the champion, is the hero in the this universe. She goes about, she has been chosen by the universe to be the person who can slay the vampires and actually slay lots of different monsters, has superhero powers and skills, and then goes about saving the world time and time again with a group of friends and a mentor who is called the Watcher, and her friends are dubbed the Scoobies, as in the Scooby-Doo gang. Chaos ensues. (laughs) (laughs) And for context, so Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the TV show, ran from 1997 to 2003. But before that, there was a film, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, in 1992. I want to say Christy Swanson was Buffy. Um, and when they, I guess, remade the show or remade the franchise as a TV show, it starred Sarah Michelle Geller, who coincidentally became a part of the actual Scooby gang in the live action Scooby-Doo franchise. And we love her for that. I really love the live action Scooby-Doo. That was a film that my mother bought me the DVD and I watched it every day for a month so i i still can remember like every single word from that movie but that's neither here nor there so buffy the vampire slayer is a fandom that has really grown and thrived over the last 20 years it has had a life of its own beyond the original show it's something that sarah michelle geller is still best known for other than scooby-doo And it's been studied so heavily at universities. There have been Buffy courses to do with women's studies and and film and television studies. So we're going to talk about you and Buffy. So when did you, Veronica, become a fan of Buffy and how did you become a fan? And where were you in your life at that point? So the movie came out when I, I believe I was still in high school. Um, and I liked it. It was fun and I liked the concept. So I know that I heard about the TV show starting. And so I, I've been watching, I've been a fan of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the TV show since day one, since it first aired. And so that started probably my senior year of college. It was 97 and I was just hooked from the beginning. I just love the snappy language, dialogue, the snappy dialogue, and just the vibe of everything, particularly how Buffy starts off as having a secret identity. No one knows who she is except for her, her watcher, but very quickly just blows her cover <laughs> and fesses up to a few friends and then goes about trying to save the world time and time again without having her friends die. <laughs> Full disclosure, I have seen Buffy in its entirety exactly once. I want to say I will occasionally rewatch an episode here or there, but I haven't gone through the full rewatch. And I watched the show around 2016. So it's it's been a few years and I don't remember every single thing that happened, but I do remember a lot of the major story arcs and I remember a lot of the ships that I liked and I remember my favorite characters and, and a lot of the themes. Who were your favorite characters and what ships and story arcs do you recall most fondly? So my favorite character is Willow. I really identify with just like the kind of bookish nerd 
someone who just needs a little bit of to break out of her shell in many ways. And she was a hacker. And like in, in season one, she was very mousy and everyone just treated her as like a very wholesome, cute, reliable character, which there's like a whole episode devoted to trying to talk about that framework. But then when they need to get into like police records or school records, Willow's like, give me the computer, I can do it. And this is in 97, 98. So people, uh, the idea of hacking was very new to a lot of people. (laughs) And so it was a really badass skill to have at that time. And then I also loved Giles because he was the librarian and um, so, yeah, so I'm just really drawn to the the nerdier characters of the Scooby gang, uh, but definitely love Buffy. I mean, Buffy is probably my favorite, one of my favorites as well. Just the idea of someone who has to carry all this weight of being a, this kind of reluctant hero. Uh, and then particularly when we find her, she definitely is a reluctant hero and goes through these cycles of owning her hero status, throwing it off in moments of despair, reclaiming it. This cycle of this young woman who is claiming and reclaiming, throwing off her her power is just, I think it's a really good tale of talking about how we don't always have to be everything every every day. When I think about Buffy, the themes that I think about most are coming of age, collaboration with friends, women's sexuality, and leadership. The thing I liked about Giles is that there's an opportunity to slut shame Buffy for making the quote unquote wrong choice with Angel or whatever. She has sex with Angel and then everything goes awry. And he explicitly says, I'm not going to shame you for this. You made the decision that was right for you. And I just love that Buffy had a male figure in her life who was a mentor and also kind of a feminist as well. I don't know if that was explicit um, to the show or I don't remember if it was, but I just liked that Buffy could be who she was. She could grapple with the complicated nature of being you know, the world's savior and also being a teenage girl and she could go dancing at the bronze and she could just have her life as much as she could while also tackling issues related to leadership. So that leads me to the question, do you think that Buffy shaped your definitions of leadership and feminism in some way? Wow. It's a great question because Buffy spans the time between me graduating college and me becoming a mom. My 20s, when I was really exploring who I was, trying to figure out who I was, especially as a feminist and a feminist leader, I think it probably did because I really do rely heavily on pop culture to inform who I am as terms of, you know, some people might look at like Greek mythology and what lessons do I learn from there? And I look at Buffy and I look at Xena and I look at everything else I'm consuming. Like, what lessons do I learn from this that I can take and apply to my own life? So relying on friends, creating a chosen family, learning to listen to mentors and take the advice that I need at a given time is really important. And particularly, as you said, the, the way that Giles interacts with Buffy and a father figure, not slut shamey and empowering way is great. He does get annoyed with her that she would like to go on a date versus go out and keeping a Sunnydale safe from vampires. But 
it is not about her sexuality as much as her priorities in life. <laughs> and, and I think that that also is another thing that Buffy teaches us is that um, there are times to get to work, uh, but there are definitely times where you need to have fun. Right on. Um, I'm not sure if you've created any any fan art or blogs or anything to do with Buffy, but I'd be curious to know if Buffy has inspired you in your feminist writing. Have you ever written like a feminist blog post or, or something about Buffy in the past? So I've been on the internet. I've had some sort of presence on the internet since probably 95, 96. And so in those early days and like the proto blog days of my life, I definitely had a fan page dedicated to Buffy on my webpage where I would collect different images and there were quiz internet quizzes back then you could take which character were you and all those sorts of things. So I had my like kind of like an internet shrine to Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So that was probably what I've done in terms of creating anything. Uh, but I've definitely written about Buffy, particularly the last few years, talking about Joss and Buffy and trying to separate the artist from the art, which is a hard thing. The last few years, I've been a super fan of Buffy and the Vampire Slayer, which is a rewatch podcast um, that finished last year. <laughs> a lot of the folks in that fandom, I think we have started to just say that we are our fans of Buffy the character, particularly Sarah Michelle Gellar, and that we love what it stands for and what it talks about. So a lot of my writing has been about that, that tension around that art and artist loving Buffy and how much she is important to who I am as a person. Um, and as you said, as myself, as a, as a leader and as the feminist and grappling with her creator. As someone who has been a longtime fan of Firefly, Buffy, Dr. Horrible, and many other things that were created in the Joss Whedon verse, I myself have struggled with this same question. But another problem that we see with the Whedon verse is how white it is. So let's talk about representation or lack thereof. Buffy the Vampire Slayer, having come out in the late 90s, early 2000s, is a pretty white show. And if it were made today, I would hope that it would be much more racially, culturally, sexually diverse. Although I guess Willow was a lesbian, but um, spoilers. Generally much more diverse than it was as a Latina activist and blogger, can you talk about where you saw yourself in the show's storylines or characters or maybe where you didn't? You know, back then, I think I was just consuming media and taking what I needed to take out of it and not actually expecting actual physical representation. So a spoiler, there is an early episode that has the villain of the episode is an Inca princess, which is a horrible episode to revisit in today with a, like knowing about representation and, rep and racism and how we all have a, a completely different standard for today. At least mo more of us have a different standard. I'm sure people were horrified by that episode in the day as well. And it didn't sit well with me on that day, but, you know, it's one of those things where I was like, ah, oh, it's a bad episode. and Let's see how it goes next week. And that's what I really liked about the podcast as well as to listen, going back and listening with a couple other people and the community and kind of just redigesting the episodes and thinking about like where we were in our thoughts and our process and our own learning about racism, homophobia, sexism, sexuality 
um, in light of all of these characters so that we can use the episodes, we can use the series as a way to re-examine who we are and how much we have grown and where the world is today, as opposed to just trashing it all and saying it was just problematic and we should just move on, but to really take it and learn and re-engage and push ourselves to be even better. It seems like the representation that you get from the show comes not so much from the show itself as it does from being a part of that fan community and the podcast community, which is actually really cool, even though we would have liked to see an amazing Latinx character or Latina Slayer. Or um, I think that there was a Latina Slayer in that group of like 40 Slayers in the end, but I couldn't tell you anything about most of those slayers except that there were a few actors in that group who wound up being really famous kennedy is latina canonically latina and she is the, the the potential slayer who ends up falling in love with willow in the last season so i really actually like that last season even though it was all over the map because we got that we started to get that diversity on the screen and we had kennedy as the latina a character. I was like, yes, finally, we've got this. She's not the big bad or anything like that. A little annoying, sure, but <laughs> um, she's just a little bratty. Yeah. And as an activist, how can Buffy remain relevant for you and other activists in 2023? I mean, I know we talked already about Joss Whedon and how Sarah Michelle Geller has reckoned with how she and other women were treated on the show. But what is Buffy to you, you know, at this time? There's particularly episodes where Buffy is definitely fighting for not just to save the world, but fighting for for a, a silenced community, particularly the episode where she had run away to LA and realized that there's this demon that is essentially just kidnapping runaway teens and taking them to this evil dimension. It's so she's not just doing it to save the world, but she has empathized with a, a certain population or is showing us how to empathize with a certain population and fighting for their sake and not just for the sake of the world. I think one of the funniest things about the whole Buffy verse is this idea that there is this one woman in all of the world who is supposed to slay the vampires, but she stays in this one town. Um, and so everything she does is very local. Every one vampire she kills is a big deal. And so it does show that if you do your small part, whether it's one vampire or one thing in your community, you're making the world a better place. She doesn't travel all over the place trying to slay all the vampires, save the entire world by traveling the world. She's trying to save the world by protecting this one space on, on the planet. It is really funny in retrospect because in real life, it's not that the hellmouth of the universe exists in one town in California. It's that we all have our own hellmouth and the world would end. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's dismal. No, no, I like this idea that it's that Buffy is a metaphor for this idea that all politics is local in a way, right? And that every person has a role. And, and also going back to the collaboration part, I find it really inspiring that Buffy would be nowhere without her friends. Like, yes, she is the person with the supernatural powers, but Willow and, and Xander and everyone plays a, a part in saving the world. And I just think that that's really cool. 
It is. And I think there are definitely references in the show. There's particularly references in the comics that come out afterwards, after the show is done, that do state that Buffy's longevity is due to her friend. Every other Slayer before her did it on their own. And as we've also learned throughout the series, that most watchers really did just watch, where Giles and the show definitely got in on the fight with her. But because she inadvertently grew this team around her, this is what helps keep her going. We see Xander save her life. In the first um, season, Xander, Willow, and Buffy like meld into like this kind of super superhero in the end of one season in order to defeat Adam. Uh, that was a bad framing, but that was not the, my favorite big bad, I should say. Adam was not my favorite big bad. But there are definitely, definitely many times in the the whole storyline where friends are the people who who save you and as you get older you really learn how true that is that is one of the truest things that we could say here today as a university administrator and an advocate for latinx students in stem did you find that the college season of Buffy where she goes to school and then her mom dies unexpectedly and then she has to support her family, was that something that felt familiar to you or something that you relate back to your work at the university level? At the time, no. But as I have grown in my work and rewatch that over and over. It definitely does because we definitely do see students who have to leave their studies because life has just gone to hell. And so that they have to leave their studies in order to take care of family, um, in order to step in. And we particularly saw that during the first few years of this pandemic, particularly the pandemic hit a lot of our communities of color really hard. And those students needed to step away from their studies, whether temporarily or permanently in order to step up and help take care of their family, get jobs, take care of their parents, their their siblings. It's, there's no like one path forward, I assume. So like when students are struggling with balancing their studies and these life events, things like the pandemic or the illness of a loved one, what advice generally do you give them? When students are struggling, I definitely tell them they need to reach out and ask for help. I would say all students have a hard time asking for help. Uh, but particularly students of color. And I think it, it comes from this idea that we have this American dream bootstraps theory that everyone makes it on their own. And so I'm always dismantling that idea and being able to reference things like Buffy. Buffy can't do it all on her own. She definitely relies on a team to, of her friends to help her um, save the world all the time. So it's okay if you need to go see a tutor or ask your professor for an extension or ask somebody for any sort of help um, in order for you to slay your degree. <laughs> that is something I would def- I could definitely see myself um, referencing. She perseveres. She gets knocked down a lot, but she gets back up. And again, she doesn't do it on her own. And I think that a lot of students can learn from that. It's okay if you have to take a time out and you just keep going back. You take a time out and you recover. You can't get to your goal if you're going to stop out and you just give up. There's usually a way around whatever obstacle is in your way. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's under, sometimes it's through, sometimes it's over. And then sometimes it's okay to say, you know, that, that obstacle is too big, but I'm also, I will go in this direction and that's okay. 
that's something as a formerly working class university student, something that I had to learn was how to ask for resources, how to find grant funding and scholarship funding for to be able to do an unpaid public service internship. And I think when I was able to ask for help the summer that I had this internship, everything clicked for me that there are resources, there is money under rocks, you know, not literally under the rocks on campus, that would be really fun and convenient. But metaphorically, there are certainly opportunities to find resources if you're willing to to go look for them or ask for help. So Veronica, did you have anything else you wanted to share with us today? There's lots of different things that are happening. I'd also like to share that this month I published my first book. It is a children's book and it's called J is for Justice, an activism alphabet book. I got to pick 26 things that I would like two to five-year-olds to know about (laughs) in terms of social justice. And it is just a gorgeously illustrated book. Um, I did not do any of the illustrations, (laughs) which is why it is gorgeous, (laughs) but... (laughs) I did put together uh, what those 26 words were. It was a really fun thing to do. And I'm really excited at my friends who bought the book and their little ones have really engaged with it. Well, that's very exciting. Congratulations. I will share a link to the book, Jay is for Justice, in the show notes. And where can we find you on social media? You can find me on social media, on Twitter and Instagram at Veronica I. That's Veronica, E-Y-E. And mostly on Instagram, but I'm on Twitter as well. Gotta watch uh, Rome burn. (laughs) Well, Veronica, thank you so much for joining us on Fandom Made Me. Oh, thank you for having me. Fandom Made Me is an independent production of Fandom Forward, executive produced by Brian Carton and hosted and produced by me, Sabrina Carton. Special thanks to Claire Ty and Barbara McMillan, and of course, our Patreon subscribers. To follow us and learn more about supporting fan activism, visit fandomforward.org. Thanks for listening.